welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the, the savoriness of your word. We thank you for the, how the word will encourage us, how the word um, strengthens us, how the word refreshes us. But we're also super thankful for how your word rebukes us. Um, calls us to repentance, convicts us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do all those things today through your word, that as we gather this morning, that we would experience the full range of the benefits of your word. And we know that that happens through your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you have sent your spirit to dwell within our hearts so that we can sense your presence, even now as we dig into your word, that we'll sense your presence and that we'll sense the presence of one another, Lord, in the communion of the saints that we have through your Holy Spirit. And so we pray you do both of those works this morning. Lord, we pray that we would truly sense and know and be changed as a proof that we have met with you, the living God. And so we ask that this morning. It's something only you can do. And we pray it for your son's glory in his name. And all God's people said, amen. And so we're in a series in uh, the book of Exodus. We're six weeks into a series called Freed to Follow. And we've chosen to just keep going through Exodus, even through this whole coronavirus pandemic situation. And so this is the third week that we're meeting in this way. And we've just decided as an elder team to just continue to go through the schedule that we already had for Exodus that we had planned months ago, because we really wanna see what God has for us in this book. And it's been amazing, guys. It's been amazing how well what's in this planning that happened a long time ago, it fits with where we're at. And so our plan all along is to be in the Passover text, uh, the Sunday before Passover. And so Lord willing, Marcella will be preaching on the Passover next Sunday, which is the week before Passover. And then we'll also be gathering in this way through a live stream for Good Friday. So we'll have a Good Friday service together. And then we'll have Easter together. And so be looking forward to that. Um, This week, we're looking at the plagues in Egypt. And I know you might be thinking like, this is really strange that we would be in a passage on the plagues on Egypt when we're dealing with the current things we're dealing with, with coronavirus and and all the effects of that. And so um, anyway, it's a huge passage. It's a a chapter 7 through 10. And we want to take all the plagues together. We're actually going to leave the last plague for next week. Um, That sounds strange. But we're going to leave the last plague for next week when we talk about Passover. So we're going to look at plagues 1 through 9, chapters 7 through 10. And let me open by just reading the first 13 verses of Exodus 7. If you guys will turn there, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh so that it becomes a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh summons his wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So we're going to look at the first nine plagues. 9 out of 10, and we're going to see three things. We're going to see the power of God, we're going to see the hardness of man, and we're going to see the love of God. First, let's look at the power of God. What we have here, guys, in these plagues is really a battle of the gods. It's a battle between the gods of the Egyptians and the God of the Hebrews. And we see that in the way that um, chapter 7 starts off, because we have Moses performs a sign, and then the magicians try to match that sign. Moses has Aaron cast down his staff, and it turns into a snake. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, but then Aaron's snake staff swallows up all of theirs. And this is a a foreshadowing, a sign of how this whole duel is going to go. Then the plagues begin. First plague here is the Nile turning to blood. Take a look at Exodus 7.20. It says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants. And he lifted up his staff and he struck the water of the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And remember, the Nile is the source of their whole life. So this is a massive disaster. I mean, even today in Egypt, the Nile is the source of life for that land. And then take a look at verse 22. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Guys, there's no indication here that the uh, magicians of Egypt were just merely doing tricks. They were doing real magic. They were doing magic by the power of the evil one, right? And so we'll see soon, though, that Pharaoh's magicians can't compete with the power of God. So we got the Nile turning to blood. Then we have the frogs. Take a look at Exodus 8, 6. Aaron stretched out his hand on the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the whole land of Egypt. And if you read down a little further, it says that the frogs were in their houses, frogs were in their beds, in their ovens, in their kneading bowls. And then it says in verse 7 that the magicians were able to do the same thing. They could make frogs too, which I have no idea why they would want to make additional frogs, because this wasn't just a nuisance. This massive amount of frogs was actually a public health crisis. If you look in verse 14 of chapter 8, it says that they gathered them together, all the dead frogs, in heaps, and the land stank. And so Pharaoh begs for it to stop, and the Lord gives mercy and relents, and it does stop. And then the next plague, because Pharaoh doesn't believe still, and he still hardens his heart, then there's the gnats. Look at Exodus 8.16. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats over man and beast. And so he strikes the dirt and it 
and it shoots up and it becomes gnats and it's all over um, the humans and the animals. And the magicians are really impressed by this. They say, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he didn't let the people go. The fourth plague, this is the flies. Now, this next plague is interesting because the Lord specifically states that his people are exempt from this plague. Take a look at Exodus 8.22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. And so there's this division where God actually only allows the plagues to to land on the Egyptians. And this particular distinction happens over the next several plagues too, where it just affects the Egyptians. So then there's the fifth plague, the livestock. Take a look at chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh, go in... Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on all your livestock in the field, the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks. And so not all their animals, but a ton of their animals die off here. We'll see that there's more die off of animals later. So, um, but there's this huge plague on their livestock, their livelihood. And then Pharaoh still won't let the people go. And so the sixth plague is boils. Take a look at Exodus 9, 8. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh and to Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh and it shall be fine dust of the whole land of Egypt and it will become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land. And so he takes the soot out of the kiln. And there's some poetic justice here because remember in the earlier chapters, Pharaoh is making the people make these bricks and he's making them make them without straw. And so he's actually using the kiln dust, the dust from the place where you would harden those bricks to to throw up in the air and it becomes boils all over everybody. And even on the magicians um, that Pharaoh had. Seventh plague is hail. Uh, the seventh plague is hail. And it's interesting because the, the hail plague is the first time that the Egyptians have an opportunity to avoid one of the plagues. Um, he says in chapter 9, verse 18, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send and get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die and the hail will fall on them. And so they had this opportunity. If they took their animals and and their people and got them into safe harbor, they wouldn't be affected. And then it says, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And so we have an interesting picture here of the gospel, don't we? That there's a warning of God's word to seek shelter. And we, of course, know that ultimately we seek shelter in Christ, that all who seek shelter in him will be saved. And then we have the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 4. For if you will, if you will refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they'll eat what is left after the hail. And and so these locusts come in, I think you know what locusts are, but they're like kind of like grasshoppers and they can just come in in huge swarms and just eat up crops. I mean, if you go on YouTube or something and look up locusts, you could probably find videos of this. 
And so they come through and they actually darken the sky. There's so many of them. And then in Exodus 10, 21, there's the, the, the ninth plague, the last one that we're going to do, the tenth one we'll do next week. But Exodus 10, 21 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did, could not see one another, nor did, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light in their land. And so you know, where the Israelites live, it's, it's bright and sunny. And where the Egyptians live, it's complete darkness. And notice he says here that it's, it's a darkness that can be felt. So it's a, it's a terror. They're terrified when they see the sun you know, darkening like this. They're completely terrified. It's a darkness that can be felt. Have you felt that? Have you had a, a darkness that could be felt? And it says, notice that they're sheltered in place. They're, they're, they're staying in their homes because it's so dark, nobody can go anywhere. So what's going on here? What's going on here in these plagues? A couple of things we can say about these plagues. One is, is it's God showing his power over creation. The Lord is turning their world upside down. He's attacking them from the water. He's attacking them from the land. He's attacking them from the air. God was showing his power over creation. I mean, all the things that they normally had order to are becoming disordered. Their world is turning upside down. But I think there's something deeper going on here because these plagues are also God shaming, uh, shaming the gods of the Egyptians. So when he does these, he's actually showing the weakness of their gods. And so they trust in this kind of pantheon of gods. And what God's doing here in the plagues is he's shaming their gods. He's showing how weak the gods are that they trusted in. All these attacks show how vulnerable their gods were. Their gods were so, could so easily fail them. Just some guy comes in and puts down a staff and their gods are failing him. And we see that in several ways, like the Nile. The overflow of the Nile, when the Nile would overflow each year, that was worshipped as a god called Hopi. Um, the frogs, there was a fertility goddess called Heket, and she had the head of a frog. And so there was meaning to all these plagues to them from a religious standpoint. These stood for their gods. Um, the cattle dying. There was a, a god called Hathor, which was the mother of sky goddess, and she was depicted as a cow. Um, and then most obviously, I think, is the darkening of the sun. So their most important deity was Ra, right, which is a sun deity. And so when they black out the sun, when God blacks out the sun for three days, it's showing the weakness of Ra. And so what's the Lord doing in turning their world upside down? He's showing the Egyptians that their gods were too weak to save them. Their gods were too weak to save them. Their gods could so easily fail them. And guys, this was a lesson not just for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh. This was a lesson for God's people, the, the Hebrews as well, because they too were tempted to trust in the false gods of their culture. Right? And this was a temptation they had even as they got into the wilderness. God's people needed to be shown that the, that the gods of the Egyptian culture were too weak to save them. And I think, guys, we need that too, don't we? We need to be shown the weakness of our culture's gods, don't we? And we need to be shown that the idols of our culture, the things that we tend to kind of trust in as well, just like our culture does, those idols of our culture are too weak to save us. We're tempted to worship those idols just like the rest of the culture does. And I was just thinking about how, how appropriate this is for this time because I think throughout this season of coronavirus, we're being shown the weakness of our idols too, aren't we? 
We're being shown the weakness of our idols, the weakness of the idols of our culture. We're being shown how much we trust in things other than God to bring us security and happiness and peace, aren't we? Do you feel that? I know for myself, my core idols have failed me. I mean, one of my core idols is the idol of control. I have an idol of control. I want to be in control of things. I'm a very orderly person. I follow a routine. I like the security of planning. And guess what? This season of coronavirus has shown me the weakness of my idol of control. I don't have control. I can't plan anything. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's going to happen next month. There's no planning that can be done. My idol of control has been shown to be as weak as the Egyptian god Ra, right? Um, My idol of consumerism and convenience. I mean, you know, when I'm stressed or when I'm sad or when I'm bored, I could always just buy something. It doesn't even have to be a big thing. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's a gadget. Maybe it's a book or whatever it is. Just go on Amazon, maybe buy a few things or maybe go to the store and get something for myself. Make myself feel better. And and guess what? You know, we've been through times when we can't buy things. (laughs) So strange. And what is that doing? That's showing the weakness of my idol of consumerism and convenience that my idol can fail me in a second uh, instantly in ways I never thought I could. My idol of security and provision. I mean, the true idol in my life that I feel good when I know that I can make my own money and when I can be well ahead of my own bills. And I don't want to, I mean, the the last thing I want to have to do is to rely on some sort of stimulus checks to, to pay my bills. That is not something I'm interested in doing because I have an idol of security and provision. I want to, I want to have the funds on hand. I want to trust in what my own hands can do. And guys, it's showing how weak that is. And it can be taken away in a moment. And some of you guys have have dealt with that in brutal ways. And if you have, guys, let us know because the deacons are available. We have a benevolence fund. We have that for a reason. We want to spend that in ways that God would have us spend that. So let us know if you're in that kind of need. But it's showing me the weakness of my own ability to provide for myself and my own security. For you, what idols are you being shown are weak throughout this? And maybe it's the idol of entertainment. Maybe there's certain entertainment that you would go to normally to try and kind of give you a sense of peace or joy or whatever, you know, maybe escape, you know, maybe a sports or something like that that's all been canceled. Or maybe it was the ability to go see a show or or whatever, you know, that your entertainment, that thing that you would normally rely on for, for peace, the place where you would go when you felt bad, it's gone. Maybe it's the idol of your political party. I mean, we're being clearly shown that no, neither political party can save us, right? Um, it, we're showing the weakness of the idol of political party. We're being shown the idol of our health, right? That we think we have control over our health. We think that we'll live forever. We think that we're invincible. And we're being shown that something very simple can take that away. We're being shown the idol of freedom. You know, as Americans, we want to be free to do what we want when we want. It's super important to us. And here we are being told to stay at home. Here we're being told what we can do. And some of you are being told your business can't be open. I mean, this is really challenging my idol of freedom. I think it's probably challenging yours as well. You know, the idol of comfort, you know, maybe you just want your own space and you're, you know, everybody's at home all the time and you're feeling kind of boxed in and, and, and there's an idol of comfort being taken away. Guys, we're seeing that none of these things has the power we thought it had to to serve us, the power to take care of us. And we're seeing that in a moment, these idols will fail us. Amen? 
And, and that's a real blessing, guys. That's not a bummer. That's a real blessing. It's a blessing to have false idols taken away from us. It's a blessing for us to be shown that only the Lord can give us the joy and peace and hope that we crave. Amen? Do you want to be shown that? I think we've all prayed that, but then when it happens, it's a little hard, isn't it? I mean, it's been significantly hard, and it's going to get harder. I mean, I, I think we're going to have a rough season. You know, this current distress we're in, guys, is God calling us to come to him for refuge and hope. And I just pray Lord, that, to the Lord that we will not refuse God's call as Pharaoh did. And so we saw the power of God. Secondly, let's look at the hardness of man. God's call of repentance to Pharaoh was clear. He said over and over again, he said, let my people go. And at the end of every plague, you see that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh thought that obeying the Lord would cost him too much. So Pharaoh tried to avoid by different means. He just ignored God's call. He did that with the, the Nile turned to blood. He did that with the gnats. He did that with the, the uh, livestock dying. He did that with the boils. Sometimes Pharaoh, though, would beg for help. He'd beg for help from the Lord, and the Lord would give him mercy, and then he would immediately harden up his heart. And he did that with the frogs and with the hail. There's a super sad verse in Exodus 8.15. It says this, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, you know, the plague was taken away. He hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, Pharaoh didn't just harden his heart against God's judgment. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's grace. And I don't know about you, but I know people that have been given mercy after mercy from God and still get harder and harder against him. Pharaoh also tried to avoid God's call by negotiating for partial obedience. You ever try that with the Lord? He did that with the flies, the locusts, and the darkness. At first he goes, okay, well, I see what you want. Well, how about I just let you sacrifice here in Egypt? And Moses is like, that's not what the Lord asked for. And then a little bit later he's like, well, I'll just let the men go outside of Egypt and sacrifice. And Moses is like, that's not what the Lord asked for. And then later he says, well, I'll let the people go, but not the animals. And Moses is like, no, God's command is clear. Let his people go and all of their livestock. And what's going on here is that Pharaoh is still trying to be his own God. He's trying to be his own God. Guys, true faith and repentance is absolute surrender. It's not negotiation. It's absolute surrender. But what we find in Pharaoh is absolute refusal. Take a look at Exodus 10, 28. It says, then Pharaoh said to him, he's saying this to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. And listen to what Moses says. As you say, I will not see your face again. Super sad. Pharaoh thought that obeying the Lord would cost him too much. The truth is just the opposite. Remember what Jesus said. He said, whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? It's the best question ever asked. A lot of people are, are bothered here in this text by something I think I should cover it, which is uh, the hardening of Pharaoh. So you hear, you know, Pharaoh hardens his heart, but you also hear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people are bothered by that. Like, how could God harden somebody's heart and things like that? And I get the tension here. But one of the things we need to remember here is, is that Pharaoh is not a nice guy. Pharaoh is not a guy who, you know, would have followed God, would have followed the Lord, but God wouldn't let him. He kept hardening his heart. That's not what happened here. 
Um, I think when we think of Pharaoh that way, it's misplaced compassion, guys. Like this is Pharaoh. This is this is like sympathy for the devil, right? Uh, Pharaoh quite literally thinks he's a god, and he thinks he owns a whole race of people. And so this wouldn't be the place for that kind of compassion. He's not an innocent, neutral, nice guy that God made mean. Pharaoh was plenty hardened when Moses first appeared. And he had hardened, Pharaoh had hardened his heart over the years against God. And so when God does harden his heart, this kind of judicial hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that came later. But he was plenty hardened when, when, when Moses showed up. So you might say, ask yourself, well, why would God add then to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? And I believe that what's happening here is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart not to make Pharaoh disobey him. He would have done that anyway. God hardened Pharaoh's heart to make Pharaoh's downfall spectacular. And we can see that in Exodus 10.1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I'm the Lord." So God hardened Pharaoh's heart to make sure that Pharaoh's fall was epic, that it was spectacular, that it was worldwide news. And you know what, guys? It worked. Forty years later, when the, when the Israelites arrive at Jericho in the Promised Land, Rahab the prostitute has heard of the Exodus. Forty years later, all the way over in Jericho, um, Rahab has heard of the Exodus. And that story was instrumental in her conversion as she came to trust in the Lord. You might ask, well, how does this hardening relate to us today? Um, you know, does God harden people in this way today? And I think, I think we need to understand the hardening of Pharaoh was a special act of redemp- in redemptive history. And so we should be a little careful in kind of applying that to regular, how God deals with ordinary people. But I do think there's something that like this that happens when somebody persistently resists the gospel, when they persistently resist the gospel. In Romans 1.18, Paul says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice there the tense is revealed. So There is a type of wrath that was currently being revealed in Paul's time and is currently being revealed in our time against those who suppress the truth. And you might say, well, what kind of wrath is that? Because I don't see, you know, plagues falling down on them or anything like that. What's he talking about? Well, if you read a little further in Romans 1, you find three times this phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. So God, you know, they indulge in idolatry and God gave them up to their idolatry. They indulge in sin. God gave them up to their sin. God gave them over, gave them over. It's a wrath that's quite different than the plagues that are happening in Egypt. It's a wrath that theologians call passive wrath as opposed to his active wrath, which would be like the plagues. God's passive wrath is his judgment of giving people over to their own sinful desires. Person resists, person resists, person resists, and God goes, okay, that's passive wrath. Passive wrath is to let somebody give them over to their own sinful desires. It's really a lot like what we see Moses saying at the end of chapter 10 when he says to Pharaoh, as you say, you will not see my face again. 
And so we see both kinds of wrath in this text. We see the active wrath in Exodus of the plagues, really clear to see. And then we see the passive wrath of God being revealed inside of Pharaoh's heart as his heart is becoming more and more hardened. How does that relate to us today? Well, the writer of Hebrews warns us this way. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, right? What he's warning about there is God's passive wrath. And it's like this. Don't assume that you can harden your heart to the Lord day after day, and then at some distant time, you're going to be able to repent and trust in Jesus. You haven't been given any kind of security of that. Today is the day of salvation, right? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Your heart could become in a place that it becomes so hard that it's immovable towards the Lord. So today, do not harden your heart. And guys, look at the beauty of the God that we have to turn to. I mean, the beauty of the God that we have to turn to and trust in. We talk about repentance. It's, it's a turning away from sin to tr- turn to a God that is so desirable, right? He, we saw in this text that he's all powerful, but we also know from this text that he's all love. Guys, the story of the Exodus is about God bringing his, all, his almighty power to bear over creation to love his people. He's using his almighty power over creation to love his people. And it's not because of their faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness to his promise. Guys, we're saved by God's faithfulness to his promise, not by our own faithfulness to him. Amen? Isn't that amazing how the gospel works? The God who used his power over creation to turn the Egyptians' world upside down came into this world to turn the world right side up. The God who worked the plagues on Egypt came into the world as the man, Jesus Christ. And we can tell that Jesus was and is the God of the Exodus because he had that same command over nature, that same absolute power over nature. It was a power that sometimes terrorizes friends. Remember when he stilled the storm, it says in Mark 4, that they were filled with fear and they said, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Sometimes it was frightening to them. And many times it delighted them. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus fed thousands with a few loaves. Jesus could heal skin diseases with a touch. He gave sight to the blind. He he raised the dead. Jesus' miracles prove that he is the one who can turn the world right side up again. In Jesus Christ, God came not to give plagues to his enemies, but to take the plagues of his enemies. Amen? On the cross, Jesus Christ took upon himself all the wrath that our sins deserve. And so it's no surprise that as he's hanging on that cross, taking our sins, that the sky went dark and the earth shook. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, it was Jesus's world being turned upside down so that our world can be turned right side up. The cross was God himself taking in his own body all the plagues our sin deserved. Even the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Three days later, God gave us the first sign that our world's going to be turned right side up again. And that sign was the resurrection. And we're going to celebrate that, guys, in two weeks at Easter. So if the plagues show us how, how sin has turned the world upside down, the resurrection shows us how, God, how Jesus is going to set all things right again. And guys, we live in this, this time. We live in a time when the world's been turned upside down, don't we? Do you feel that? I mean, 
Who would have thought a month ago that we would be living like we're living now, right? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it feels like years ago, <laughs> doesn't it? It was like forever ago. But less than a month ago, we had no idea that our world could be changed like this, that our daily life could be altered like this. That's how weak our idols are. That's how weak our idols are to give us what we want. But we live in a time, guys, when the world's been turned upside down. But like the Israelites in the Exodus, when we see our world being turned upside down, we can know that it's not God's wrath to us. Jesus took God's wrath to us. When we see the world turned upside down, it's not God's wrath to us. It's a warning to the world, for sure, to turn. But it's not God's wrath to us. Um, unlike the Israelites, we have no promise that these tribulations will make a distinction between us and the world, though, right? I mean, you know, when you saw like the darkness only on the Egyptians' land, but not on the Hebrews' land, we don't have promises like that. These tribulations fall on believers and unbelievers. What's the difference? Is that when they fall on us, we know it's not God's wrath. Like the Israelites, we can know that all the tribulations we experience are signs of our coming redemption. I mean, think about that. As they were seeing the plagues come upon their land, they knew that God was on the move. They knew that God was working the salvation that he had promised. I think we should see these things that way as well, that these are signs that God is on the move. These are signs that our redemption draws near. Jesus said that, that these things, these tribulations are like birth pangs, right? They're like birth pangs. They're birth pangs of the new creation. That we live in a time between the times as the new creation's breaking in. And one day, Revelation 21, 22 says that the heavenly Jerusalem will descend out of the sky onto the earth, make all things new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth that he's going to redeem this creation. He's going to resurrect this creation, make it all new as he resurrects our bodies and makes them all new. And as we deal with these kind of tribulations, we can see them, as Jesus said, as birth pangs. Like the Israelites during the plagues, when we see the world turned upside down, it's a sign that God's fulfilling his promise to give us the true promised land. Amen? I want to leave you guys with Romans 8. Romans 8, 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word, Lord. We thank you for the way that things that were written and occurred so long ago can speak so powerfully to us today. We thank you that the whole Old Testament scriptures ultimately points to your son Jesus and his work for us through his cross, resurrection, ascension, and return. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen us. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen the leaders of our land. We pray for our president. We pray for our governors, senators, congressmen. We pray for our local officials. Lord, we pray for our first responders, um, people even in our body who are firemen and nurses and PAs and um, policemen and paramedics, Lord. We pray for them, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen them. We pray you give them courage. We pray, Lord, for those first responders that are in our body, Lord, that you be a wall of fire around them to protect them from both the, the physical attacks uh, of health attacks of this virus, and also, Lord, that you protect them against spiritual attacks of discouragement and fear. And Lord, we just pray that for us as well, Lord, that you would protect us both physically and spiritually, Lord. Make us strong in the truth of the gospel, that we can stand against the assaults of the enemy and the assaults of all the things that might harm us in this world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a non-anxious presence in this world, pointing to you, the sovereign, good, and wise God. Lord, we pray that many would come to trust in you through this, Lord. We pray that those who do turn to you during this time will not turn away from you when things are good, but that they would be solidly regenerated and brought to fellowship with you forever, Lord. That you would give them that, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an eternal perspective through all these things. We thank you that we can trust in you during these difficult times. We thank you that the the true exodus, Lord, when you will make this world new and we will dwell with you in a new heavens and a new earth and resurrected bodies and that we will behold you with our very eyes, Lord, is coming. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.